You are Locked On Royals, your daily Kansas City Royals podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Let's get it going on the Locked On Royals podcast, on the Locked On Podcast Network, your teams every day. I am your host, Ryland Styles. You can follow me on Twitter at Rylan underscore Styles. That's at R-Y-L-A-N underscore S-T-I-L-E-S. On today's show, which you can follow on Twitter at Locked On Royals, we're going to have our final crossover episode with Locked On White Sox, a fun episode. We talk about both the White Sox and the Royals in this one, so stay tuned. Listen to this one all the way through. Opening day is tomorrow. We're going to have our opening day preview set for tomorrow's show. And then Friday, we recap opening day. So a lot of fun stuff going on tomorrow. A lot of fun stuff going on today. It's opening day. Listen to the recap right now. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe and follow anywhere you get your podcast from. It's the only daily podcast about the Kansas City Royals. Ryland, the first thing I want to ask you is, as a White Sox fan, I know you guys won the World Series not too long ago. The thing I worry about is, you know, changing ownership. The glass uh, ownership is done, and now you're bringing in Sherman is here. It seems to me the Royals have downshifted in in both competitiveness and going after the AL Central. It seems like they're comfortable where they're at at the bottom of the AL Central. How do Royals fans feel the team is progressing right now because I don't know if I was a Royals fan right now, I would be, you know, having that taste of the world series wouldn't quench. Um, wouldn't be quenched because after you have a taste, you need another one. And so being a also ran or a bottom dweller right now would be very infuriating, but how do you as a Royals fan feel they're doing right now? Yeah, so that's interesting. I mean, uh, John Sherman didn't take over this franchise until uh, 2019. So that, so his real first true offseason was this season, and he's curried a ton of favor with Royals fans already in his short time here, going back to last year whenever he's the only owner to pay minor leaguers the entire time and never waver on that. And then in this offseason, he's stolen the headlines in Kansas City by signing guys like Michael A. Taylor and signing guys like Carlos Santana, trading for Andrew Benatendi, whereas – in the national scape of baseball, this is where I struggle with as somebody who's just kind of a baseball nerd. These moves are not something that should move the needle. But for a franchise like Kansas City and a, and a fan base like Kansas City, who is not used to this team wanting to win every single year and not used to this team trying in years in which it's not apparent they're going to win, it, it is going to move the needle and it is going to get fans excited to where if this was the White Sox making a move to sign Carlos Santana and Mike Minor, and those were your two big moves. I'm not really sure that you guys would even care about that. But in Kansas City, this team was not supposed to win. If you went back to November, everyone thought this was going to be a 100-loss team again in Kansas City this year. But instead, this organization goes ahead and signs Carlos Santana and, and Mike Miner and Michael A. Taylor, and they trade for Ben Attendee, and they make these peripheral moves to where, okay, we at least want to be a competitive team. Sure, they're not going to win the division this year, and sure, they're not going to make the playoffs this year without the expanded postseason, which is not going to be added. But they're at least going to be a fun team to watch, which is more than we can say for – the entire last five years. And they've been pinpointing and targeting 2022 as their date to be that perennial playoff team to where they're hoping that they can make moves and show improvement this year to where you guys and national media folks are picking them to win 
the division and picking them to win in the postseason. They're hoping that these young arms can come up at that time and that they can make more of those minor signings to where they are a legitimate threat next season. So they're trying to get there, and Sherman has done everything right in his tenure in Kansas City. It's just not quite their time yet. I think that they're going to be a competitive team. I think they're going to finish third in this division, that they're that much improved, and they have that kind of ability coming up through the ranks. And I'm someone who's been heavily accused of being a pessimist and being way too negative on this team. So for me to say that, it, it kind of just shows what Sherman's done in his time here. I think that there is that reputation, though, of Kansas City from back in the in the Glass family where they've been good twice in my lifetime. I'm 23 years old. They've been good twice in my entire lifetime. They were okay in 2016, okay in 2017, but actually a legitimately good baseball team. It's been two times in my entire life. So that that taste in everyone's mouth is still there. I understand that, but the Shermans are doing things the right way. Does this mean what the fan base thinks? Where the fan base thinks that since you signed Carlos Santana, when this team's truly ready to win, you're going to go sign a big, a big free agent or at least retain a guy like Bobby Witt Jr., who's a young prospect in the system, the number three prospect in baseball or whatever it is, a seven prospect in baseball, and he's going to command a $300 million contract. Will the Kansas City Royals ever deal out that contract? Probably not, but at least it gets some interest in this team, which is what this team has needed for so long. So, you know – Building on what you talked about that that off season, where I do commend the Royals for making moves and improving around the margins when other teams were were crying poor and finding any reason to to not make their teams better. So, like, how does this fit in that this off season they had with with the big with the big picture goals for the Royals? Like you mentioned, there are guys that are that are ready to take that next step. Maybe not this year. Maybe late this year. Maybe 2022 you're talking about with Bobby Witt, and we'll get to him in a second because I've liked everything I've seen from him. But what is the, sort of the the big-picture goal for, for the franchise here? Because you still have some of the older Royals mentality where you, where you cling to guys a little bit and you don't trade guys when their value is, is the most high. And then you, you, you have the young talent that's coming up along with them. So these, these stop gaps like Carlos Santana, like are, are these guys just are supposed to be placeholders until there are guys that can, you know, fit those positions over the long term? Like what, what is the, the overall philosophy or is this just a situation where the, the ownership felt like, you know what, this fan base deserves at least a more competitive and, and better product to watch coming off of, of the pandemic 2020 where there was no fans allowed. Like, is this just simply an issue where, okay, we're, we're going to give you guys something better to watch and, and, and give you a little bit more for your dollar in 2021 than uh, we probably should have. I think it's interesting because it can be either one that you want it to be and whatever the players dictate it to be, will, will that be the case? Because they've set themselves up with the contract links and the, in the players they've signed to where Michael A. Taylor is not going to block a, center fielder from coming up like an Edward Livieris. If, if Edward goes down to the minor leagues and is playing really well, you're not holding him back for Michael A. Taylor. If Carlos Santana does not bounce back in his two years in Kansas City, it's not a big deal. You've paid him what's equivalent to 20 bucks at, at, at McDonald's uh, for playing first base for the Royals. In the meantime, though, those two moves have given the fan base life, and, and this fan base is engaged and is interested. Because as you mentioned, while these are upgrades on the peripheries and, and these are upgrades on the margins, if Kansas City in November looked at this team on paper and said, you know what, it's a pandemic and we're not very good and we've lost 100 games for so long and we still don't have our young pitchers up yet and maybe by what Judas a couple months away and they decided let's not sign Carlos Santana, let's not sign Michael A. Taylor, let's not sign Mike Miner. Nobody would be up in arms and dragging this ownership across the coals 
but yet the ownership still did that to try to give this fan base the most competitive product within their means. And so if Mike Miner's good, then that's great. But you know what? He's also going to be really good in the bullpen to where when I, if you do call up Daniel Lynch or you do call up Asa Lacey, you can easily move Mike, uh, Mike Miner's contract and Mike Miner as a player to the bullpen and put one of those two studs in the rotation. And if Carlos Santana is really good, that's great. He's not going to eat a lot of money and it'll be first base and it'll be nice and easy. And then whenever Santana's done in two years, you can slide Salvador Perez to first base on this new contract, or you can call up Nick Prado, or you can do a lot of different things at first base. None of these moves have long lasting impacts on this organization, unless they pan out to be really good moves. Like if Michael Leiter is terrible this year and is the worst hitter in baseball the way he typically has been in his career, no harm, no foul. You, you tried it, put Gerard Dyson back in there or call up Edward Livieris and move on about your day. If Santana doesn't bounce back, so what? You can gather the deal in a year. Doesn't really matter. Mike Miner at least will be, I think, in a, a good enough bullpen arm, a quality bullpen arm for if he can't be a starter anymore. And then you supplement him with a, with a good young pitcher coming up. So all these moves, while they energize the fan base, they mean nothing for the future of this team. The only one that really matters is Andrew Benatendi, who you traded a top 10 prospect in your organization for, and Khalil Lee, who many people had doubts about anyway. So if Andrew Benatendi can try to rekindle that rookie of the year form, then it's no harm, no foul there either. So like all you really did was make a lineup to where you go down this projected lineup. If you go to fan graphs and look at the roster resources page, you go down this lineup on, on this road on this lineup of this uh, team and you're going to get quality bats and you're going to have a quality at bat in almost every single position, which does help your development. And, and it does help Whit Merrifield or it helps Andrew Benatendi or Hunter Dozier or Kyle Isbell all get better at bats if they're surrounded by at least competent baseball players, which is not the way this team has operated in the past. And you mentioned what I've been most critical about is the emotional side of baseball for the Royals. The Royals to win, they have to operate more cutthroat. In this market size, in this economy of baseball, you have to treat this more like the Rays do than the Royals do. And they made their first interesting move in that regard. The old Royals regime would have kept Nicky Lopez at the big league level this year even though he's hitting 100 at spring training and can't hit in surprise Arizona, where you and I can go hit 20 home runs in surprise Arizona. They sent him down and said, no, we, we sharpied you into the lineup and you did not take the job. You're not good enough. You're going to get sent down. And instead they'll call up Kyle Isbell, who's never played in the big leagues before and will forget the service time and just move on about their life and, and, and have what Mirfield come back down after the, after building his arm up all off season, by the way, telling him to get stronger and play right field. They're now saying, I oh, know what, scratch that. Nicky Lopez is terrible. Send them down. You're going to come back down to second base. They did the cutthroat thing for once this year. Now it won't pay off for a playoff spot this year, but once again, it gives you hope that in the future, when this team is supposed to be good, if Brad Keller's not getting the job done or Danny Duffy is not getting the job done, they're out of here and you call somebody else up and you get somebody else in who will do the job. Today's episode is brought to you by Built Bar. Go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKED15 to get 15% off your next order. It is Built Bar March Madness. We're trying to crown the very best tasting protein bar by Built Bar, which is the very best protein bar on the market. It's low calorie, low sugar, high protein, high fiber, amazing tasting protein bar with 100% real chocolate on the outside of every single bar. Now it's time to find out what's the very best one. And you know that my favorite is cookies and cream, so go vote for that. How do you vote? You go to BuiltBar.com or to at bar underscore built on Twitter. Remember, whenever you go there on builtboard.com to use our promo code LOCKED15 to get 15% off your next order. That's LOCKED15 to get 15% off your next order at builtbar.com. Check back to see who won the entire tournament and who's the very best tasting Built Bar, and then order you 
some built bars because they are truly, truly incredible. They are very filling. You can use them pre-workout or post-workout. You can even use them as a meal replacement. So try them out today, right now, builtbar.com, promo code LOCK15 to get 15% off your next order. Builtbar.com, LOCK15 to get 15% off your next order. And speaking of Whit Merrifield, one of the things I think Dayton Moore made a mistake with is not dealing him after his 2018 season. I mean, at that time, 28 years, 29 years old at that time, and having his best year. And he's not a bum. He's not, he's pretty good. He's still solid. And every time the White Sox play him, we fear him. What do Royals fans feel about Whit Merrifield? He's, I think he's coming into his age 32 season. So he's not a young guy. I know Cubs wanted him for years and years when they were in their contending um, uh, slot. But I thought Dayton just, I don't know. He's got a lot of service time left with Merrifield, inexpensive. I thought they could have got a nice uh, haul back for Whit Merrifield, a 29-year-old guy having his career year at that time. What do Royals feels, fans feel about Whit Merrifield as far as being a future guy or what happened back in uh, 2018, 2019, where he just stays uh, being a Royal? It, it feels like he's still a prospect because he's still so you know, young in, in the relative terms of baseball and major league baseball to where this is a guy that kept getting passed over the minor leagues for the likes of Christian Cologne and like, and guys <laughs> like that to where you kept, you missed the window whenever you still had Hosmer and still had Moose. And instead of picking what Mayfield, you pick Christian Cologne and Omar Infante and Chris Owings. I mean, you missed the window with this guy to where you just got called up and you still kind of group them into the Hunter Dozier's and the Mondesis. Cause that's kind of the group he came up with a little bit, but he is getting pretty old in the traditional sense, but I think that his game will age gracefully, just like Ben Zobrist did, who I think that you can pretty much compare what Merrifield to is Ben Zobrist. And if you go back and look at holding on to him, I was somebody who thought that they should have traded Eric Hosmer and should have traded Lorenzo Cain, even in 2016, even after the World Series, because again, you have to be cutthroat in Kansas City to win baseball games. You cannot be this good organization because what's that going to get you? It's not going to get you the big time Mike Trout free agent. It's not going to get you the Bryce Harper free agent, no matter how good of a person you are, Dayton Moore, or how good of a person this franchise feels like. It's not going to get you those kind of guys. So what are you doing it for at that point? I mean, what's the end goal here? And so keeping with Merrifield, I would have traded him, but but since you didn't, if you believe in that 2022 window, if you believe whenever Dayton Moore has sold you for five years that this team will be good in 2022 and the young arms will be ready in 2022 and you're going to have what it takes to win in 2022, if you believe all of that, that's a hell of a contract to have and a very versatile player to have. And if it doesn't work out, I still think that again, he'll age gracefully and he'll get you that Ben Zobrist type return, which the Royals got and, and it helped them win the World Series. And without Ben Zobrist, you don't win that World Series in 2015 to where you can still get a nice package later. And how much different will that package be than the one that the Royals trade away from Ben Zobrist? I, I'm not sure how, how different it will be. So I think at the end of the day, it, it was the right move, uh, but I could see either side of it. You mentioned the emotional side of the game, and maybe Salvi Perez is a guy that will mean infinitely more to the Royals than he would anywhere else. But what did you make of that big time extension that Salvador Perez got this offseason? And, and, you know, Herb and I were looking at it before the show. Still a guy who's not as old as, as you may think he is. What was 30, Herb? Is that is that mm-hmm. what we're looking at? So, what did you make of that move when they made it? Is this a, uh, just a move where it's like this guy is so valuable to our pitching staff? 
and you know instills the the winning attitude from the 2015 team and things like that. Like, what did you make of them offering that that big time contract extension to him? Uh, did you like that, or was that more of the old Royals mentality where they have an emotional attachment to certain guys? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think that you're right that he kind of is worth more to Kansas City than he is anywhere else for, and you guys remember this very well, the Alex Gordon contract to where mm-hmm. there's all of a sudden this fake rumor of, Oh, Alex Gordon's going to sign with the white Sox. You can't let him sign with the white Sox. It's a division rival. And I, I don't know about you guys, but I firmly have always believed that that was a load of crap and he was never going to get a contract from the white Sox. He was never going to get paid more by the white Sox than what the Royals offered him. And in fact, I don't believe the white Sox were even close on offer because why would they pay Alex Gordon that amount of money? Alex Gordon played Kansas City and he got the money he deserved. It's all about the business. It's all about the negotiation. He he used the emotion of this fan base will riot if Alex Gordon, the homegrown guy, after going to the World Series, goes to the White Sox of all teams. They're, they're going to riot. You just got done fighting the White Sox 20 times a year where Lorenzo Kane is going fisticuffs with Jess Marja. Like, it's not going to happen. <laughs> that's that's crazy talk. So they, they played the Royals in that instant to where Salvador Perez, if he hits the open market today, while he is still one of the better catchers in baseball, even though the, the catcher position is pretty weak, he wouldn't get that amount of money on the open market. But on the flip side of that, there is something to be said for keeping one of those championship guys as a Royal for life. And, and at this point, the word association of Kansas City Royals baseball goes to Salvador Perez. And at this point, what's that going to do for your future? While it's the biggest contract in club history, I do not believe it hinders you from signing a future free agent because you're not going to be in the big time free agent market anyway. And I don't believe it'll keep you from signing one of your young guys. I think that the, what will keep you from signing Brady Singer long-term or keep you from signing Bobby Witt Jr. long-term is that those guys are going to be really good and that those guys will command 200, 300, $400 million because they're going to be so good. That's what keeps you from signing them, not signing Salvador Perez. And I think that he's going to age more gracefully behind the plate than people think. And if he doesn't, again, Carlos Santana is not a, not a long-term fit. He's going to leave eventually. First base is wide open. So uh, Jorge Soler is not a long-term piece of this franchise. DH will be open eventually. So it's not really any harm and, and no foul. And you still have that sort of, presence on this team and 13 will be retired one day and it'll all be a feel-good story and he'll be the Yadier Merlinia of the other side of Missouri and it'll be perfectly fine. Speaking of the White Sox Royals rivalry and fights, Brad Keller is the leader of your starting rotation. What the, It's actually a rotation that is underrated. I think maybe probably the strength of your team with Brad Keller, Danny Duffy gives everybody fits. Mike Miner, you said, is a sign and young player in Brady Singer. And I think when we saw Chris Bubich last year make his major league debut versus the White Sox, I think he faced his uh, uh, teammate in Nick Madrigal in that game. So what is the feeling about the Royals starting five for their pitchers? I think it's interesting. I think that, in Kansas City, that, that's kind of one of the worry spots of, of this team because I, I think that people put a lot of stock and faith into the bounce back of the lineup, which could be really good if, if everyone bounces back in that lineup and it could be really bad. The rotation, it's up to two young guys in Singer and Bubich. And I think that Singer can be this Cy Young type of arm eventually, but will that happen this year? Will he be that Cy Young caliber arm this year? He could, but how realistic is that to expect in his first full season, his first time pitching in front of major league fans and, and going on a true road schedule you're not just going to chicago anymore you're going to seattle you're going to all these other places to where that does wear and tear on you more so than a trip up to chicago or a trip to cleveland i think that it all hinges on danny duffy and mike minor because danny duffy can be 
on and he can give you six, seven strong and 13 strikeouts in Tampa, he can also be a complete and utter disaster on the mound and a train wreck on the mound. Mike Miner, if he can give you a solid three ERA, I mean, that's really good. And then Brad Keller, who's a rule five type guy, is your most solid piece. And whenever you have a rule five, Brad Keller as your ace and as your most trustworthy arm, there's going to be room for skepticism. But you can flip that and say, well, if Mike Miner is serviceable, if Singer and Bubich bounce out in their second breakout in their second time uh, through the big leagues, and then if Danny Duffy is just anything that's besides a train wreck, you should have the run ability, you know, the lineup capability of having a run support to where you can run, win a lot of games. And if Duffy's bad, like Mike Miner, if Duffy's bad in this contract year, kick him to the bullpen, which is the only role in his career he's ever thrived in. Kick him to that bullpen, and then you call up a young arm and you make a push if you're in that kind of realm in the later stages of this year. This rotation, like the lineup, can be very volatile. And it's just, do you want to look at this hat glass half full or glass half empty? And that's kind of the strange part of Kansas City right now because you can sell me if this team will win 75 games or that this team will win 85 games, just depending on who you think will bounce back and who you think won't bounce back. I'd love to ask Ryland Styles about Bobby Wood Jr. and the dynamic with you know Adalberto Mondesi and how that tandem is going to relate in the future, but maybe we'll hold that until Bobby Witt maybe makes his debut later on in the year, but we're going to take a quick time out here, and on the other side of this break here, Ryland's going to ask us his burning White Sox questions here on Locked On White Sox. But before we do that, I want to tell you about our good friends over at BetOnline.ag. BetOnline.ag is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sport action. Football might be over, but the NBA, college basketball, and NHL are in full swing. BetOnline.ag covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV, real-time updated odds and props, and almost anything you can imagine. BetOnline has you covered from the news, the scores, the odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head over to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today for a free account at BetOnline.ag. When you go there and use our promo code locked on, you get 50% welcome bonus in your first deposit. That's a 50% welcome bonus in your first deposit. Whenever you use our promo code locked on at betterline.ag, bet on the MLB, the over unders, World Series odds, and bet on tomorrow's game. The Royals are going to win, so bet on the Royals at betterline.ag. We're back with locked on Royals, locked on White Sox. I'm joined by the Chris and Herb tandem of locked on White Sox. I've got to ask you first and foremost, with the recent news as news of the injury, what does the Elor Jimenez news do for this season for the Chicago White Sox? I feel like there's been a lot of reaction to that, and I'm not sure what's overreaction and what's and what's kind of proper reaction. Is it an overreaction to say that if you were picking Chicago to win this division, that now you should have them as a wild card team and they should lose the division to Minnesota? Or do you think that it shouldn't change your win expectation that much? It's something I've been struggling with the past couple of days as we inch closer to opening day and we're going to do our, our our season preview prediction show tomorrow. And I keep going back and forth on this one. They're going to miss him a lot in terms of his his makeup and the clubhouse and what he brings and this 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 energy that you just you can't quantify over the course of a, of a 162 game season it's a guy that helps you out immensely then you add the fact that he was talking about maybe being an MVP candidate this year and you're talking about 30 home runs at least in your lineup so you're going to miss that obviously if you're the White Sox and there's they're saying now that maybe the injury is not as bad as, as they originally thought and maybe he'll be back by uh, August September I, I would advise the White Sox not to count on him that early just pr- proceed as if he's not going to be there but I, I'm choosing to look at this in, in a positive light in that 
yes, it's going to be a rocky start in the outfield for the White Sox for the first two weeks because Adam Engel is a guy that made a name for himself last year with his stellar outfield defense, and he's been playing great defense on the south side for a few years now. But the final, finally the bat came around in 2020, and he started to make contributions, even homered in the postseason for the White Sox. So he's going to be out for a couple weeks to start the season, and now they're talking about putting their number one pick, D.H., Andrew Vaughn uh, out in left field and I don't think you'll actually see that but it really exposes their their lack of depth in the outfield spot but you only have to weather that storm for two weeks and then I think once Adam Engel is in there you'll have Adam Engel in left Adam Eaton who they signed in the offseason back in right field with of course Luis Robert at center now all of a sudden you're talking about superb outfield defense and that's something that we haven't seen on the south side uh, in ever quite frankly so that's going to be a, a, a part of this season that I think you may look at as a silver lining and the, the defense on this team is already very good and then you take away the liability that is Eloy in left field and all of a sudden you're looking at a team where defense could be a real strength for them and, and run prevention is going to matter even more when you take out the offensive production that Eloy Jimenez normally would have given you so I for one I choose to look at it in a more positive light and you know you have a guy like Adam Engel who's going to get a lot of playing time you'll finally know one way or another for sure in 2021 can this kid play every day at the big league level so we'll have an answer to that but as far as as how it relates I think with the White Sox this year how they face up against Cleveland and Minnesota is going to determine their place in the division I know that sounds obvious but it's they're going to have to grind out a lot more games without Eloy in the lineup they're not going to be able to mash their way to victories and they have the, the rotation to, to support that and be able to grind out those victories so I think maybe this will the the silver lining will be they'll learn how to win games in different ways and their lineup is versatile enough and diverse enough where they're not going to always rely on the home run. They've got some experienced hitters here and some guys that aren't afraid to take their, their base on balls every once in a while. So, you know, it's it's going to hurt when you take that production out of the lineup, but in the big picture, I don't think it hurts them that much, and the fact that he could be back by September is certainly an intriguing possibility for them as they gear up for a postseason run. And I think that um, losing Eloy is a huge blow for the White Sox. I don't have them moving – uh, the needle down in from 90 and 72, which is where I have them before Eloy's injury. I just think everybody else is going to step up and um, elevate their games. But I had him as American League MVP um, before because this is coming into his third year. Uh, you saw is what he did his rookie year, 31 home runs and only uh, like 140 games uh, or 130 games. And so I think this year he was going to hit 40 plus home runs, going to hit for average and uh, be a part of a contending, if not AL Central, winning team for the White Sox in a full season. So it was very disappointing. And it's just a constant thing with Eloy hurting himself in the outfield, hurting himself or so other player, players in the outfield. So the way he got hurt and it was in spring training, I was more disappointed in Eloy that he got hurt that way, not that he's going to be out. Um, so... I just wish the youngster a speedy recovery. Take your time coming back because, like Tanny said, this offense is going to hit with his presence without his presence. So they'll need him back when the playoffs starts. If the White Sox make the playoffs, he'll be very valuable. We saw that last year. He got hurt at the end of the last year, came in game three, got a double, and subsequently was hurt again. So – uh, just rest up, Eloy. We need you for the playoffs. I think the White Sox are counting on him missing most, if not all, the regular season and hopefully do like the Kyle Schwarber thing, come back for the playoffs and be a hero. 
You, you guys are both 670 the score guys. And, and I have to ask the pressing question mm-hmm. because I think that Tim Anderson is incredible for this sport. And, and I am on fully on the White Sox side in this whole rivalry between Tim Anderson and Brad Keller and this Royals team. Kansas City legend Danny Parkins got Tim I, I'll Anderson take, I'll to take say, this out and post. I'll scrub that. <laughs> Kansas City legend Danny Parkins. I'll say it again. You have to do it twice now. He baited Tim Anderson into saying, F it, we're the best team in the AL. And I love that. And I love that Danny baited him into doing that. I love that he leaned in and did that. I think this team and this sport needs more Tim Anderson. Is that something that's echoed in Chicago? Or does Chicago have that kind of feeling of, well, put your head down and play and just grind and play baseball? (laughs) I would think that, like you said, though, with the latter point, that White Sox fans were traditionally – like that like oh no i don't like all that showboat and all that bat flipping all that talking smack just play the game right act like you've been there before that's when i grew up like that's what white Sox fans were gritty tough we don't show the other team up type of thing no white Sox fans have embraced and the white Sox themselves the 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 club the change the game thing is from tim anderson they have embraced the attitude that tim anderson and he is the leader of this White Sox team. He is the face of the White Sox team. So we are going wholeheartedly forward with him and that type of attitude. And I think that attitude permeates throughout the club. You talk your stuff, you have to back it up. And Tim talks his stuff. And I think, you know, the the dust up between him and Brad Keller, that's old school baseball versus new school baseball. I'm sure Timmy would not be mad if Brad Keller this year sends him down in three straight pitches and then does a big fist pump. He's like, all right, cool. That's, that's, that's how I want the game to be played. And that's how you want it to be played. You want to, you want to have fun. You want to celebrate your victories. It's not showing up the other team. It's celebrating your victories. And Tim wasn't celebrating to and front in front of Brad Keller to make fun of him. He was doing it. He's like, Hey team, I just hit a home run. Let's get jacked up type of thing. And I know you, you feel that way too. And I hope, most few people in Major League Baseball are going this way with Tim Anderson's, the Fernando Tatises, these guys who bring excitement and energy. And uh, that old stodgy game is going away and the unwritten rules are getting burned somewhere. So, yeah, Chicago has embraced Tim Anderson and it looks like um, the, na- the nation has because he's the face of RBI baseball now and he's getting a lot of endorsements, a lot of press. And folks like yourself, young folks like yourself are enjoying Timming even though he's a division rival. Yeah. Well, enough of the Danny Parkins love because he's, he is a legend in Kansas city. I grew up listening to Danny Parkins and CDOT and Benny Heisen, eighth grade English, sticking an earpiece in other people listening to music. I'm listening to Danny Parkins on the radio. So enough of the Danny Parkins. Love. I know you guys are maybe sick of that, but I do nah, need nah. you to explain. No, Danny, Dan, Danny works on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Danny's my guy. And yes, he no <laughs> doubt baited him, but uh, we, we, we always like to, uh, to avoid showering Danny with praise. It was funny though. I don't know if you caught this Ryland, but Lucas Giolito, when he was on with Chris Rose on his podcast, uh, he did not remember. He's like, whoever it was that was uh, interviewing Tim Anderson, yeah. I forgot the guy's name. And then Danny did not like that. <laughs> that, that he forgot Danny's name. Uh, but yeah, like, you know, just to, it to seems pick, like Danny. <laughs> yeah, he piggybacking off of Herb, like, just quickly here, you know, Herb said it very, just perfectly there. And this franchise was dead, like, until Tim Anderson had this sort of personal, you know, uh, you know, renaissance here in his you know he went through personal tragedy and losing one of his his best friends to to violence and 
he had this reawakening with with the White Sox, and he he was this quiet kid when they drafted him, and he was in a clubhouse with guys like Chris Sale and Adam Eaton and Jimmy Rollins amid all that turmoil of 2016, and he comes out of it and just you know slowly does his thing and, and slowly gets better. All of a sudden, he has this tragedy in his life, and he realizes that life is much too short to not be the guy that you want to be. So I thought that the fan base would not respond as well as as they did to Tim Anderson but as I said this franchise was basically dead at that point like you had Jose Abreu was there but a quiet leader not not an English-speaking leader that fans can necessarily relate to but all of a sudden you have a guy out there giving you some excitement for once like that you can track that moment there with Brad Keller uh, versus Tim Anderson to the trajectory of not only Tim Anderson but this franchise in general because Herb said it he's the face now you know, despite all the great players they have, Tim Anderson is the face when people think and talk about the White Sox. So it's been such a blessing uh, that what happened there at, at that that afternoon against the Royals, like what you know, this this franchise has really taken off since that point, and it's because Tim they've embraced Tim Anderson as its emotional leader, and he's backed it up on the field. More importantly, I feel like it's that handshake meme on Twitter because it feels like. Two White Sox Royals fights sparked both teams into being good powerhouse teams. I mean, without the Lorenzo Kane, Jeff Samarja mm. fight that we talked about earlier, that, that team does not have the chutzpah to go make those comebacks and win the World Series. A, a lot of Royals fans point back to those fights and Kelvin Herrera and everything else that went into that. And now you guys are doing the same thing with Brad Keller. It's just pretty funny how things are kind of going parallel for us. And if you ever do get bored in the station one day, ask Danny Parkins about hanging up on, uh, on uh, Jason Lockenfora with a Baltimore Royals run. But, but you guys have to explain to me. <laughs> that's amazingly. That's explain. one story that I never heard. Amazingly, I, I've heard about the, uh, the 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 glass story and the fan convention story, but I've never heard that one. I don't think so. Thank you. I'm going to file that one away. You guys have to explain to me the Andrew Vaughn story, though, because it it, it seems like this is what we wanted the Bobby Witt Jr. experience to be. Bobby Witt Jr. was a guy who's never played above Arizona Fall League. He goes to the alternate site last year. And this year, he's knocking on the door of the opening day roster. Even last week, I'm, I'm texting our lockdown prospects guy here. I'm late. Hey, if Bobby makes the team, can you come on real quick and give us a rundown of what you've seen from in the years of the fall league? And it was that serious where there was a, a possibility he would have made the opening day roster. And then here we are, a fun story in Andrew Vaughn. What kind of is the context around this move and how much more should baseball fans be paying attention to this? I think Andrew Vaughn, um, when he got drafted, Everybody said he can play in the major leagues right now. His bat is that good. He's the most ready of anybody in that draft. And I heard that, and, you know, I took it as for a, as a grain of salt. I was like, okay, yes, whatever. And so he went down to, uh, to what, single A. I think he went high A and low A and did fine. He didn't light up either of those leagues. He was good. Of course, last year, 2020, we had the – pandemic so he didn't play any minor league games they was in the alternate site in Schaumburg impressing of, of course but I don't think anybody went into this offseason thinking that next year or this year 2021 would be Andrew Vaughn's major league debut especially not on opening day he has not played one game past single a not one and so they're trying to tell us that that alternate site it's going to be type of like double A or triple A, which I don't care how good it was. I don't believe in that. There's guys, and we just talked to guys on the Future Sox uh, podcast, James Fox and Mike Rankin, who swear by the guy. 
James Fox went to the alternate side a couple times to check out what's going on and says, the guy is ready. The bat is going to be a thing. And when we would bring up, hey, how about going sign Nelson Cruz? How about re-signing Edwin Encarnacion for a year and seeing if we can get to a 162 instead of the 60 he had last year? James was adamant. And he said, no, no one's blocking Andrew Vaughn. Like if they could sign a guy for maybe a year, but Andrew Vaughn's going to play in 2021. He's so confident. And I think that's what the White Sox are feeling too. I'm shocked by them having him on the team, especially shocked that they're not going to sign him to a long-term deal. I mean, there's a couple days left still, but that's what they usually do. They do the service time manipulation where, hey, unless you're going to sign this long-term deal, you're going to go back down to the minors. They tried to do that with Luis Robert and with Aloy Jimenez, and they did it last year with Nick Madrigal, who didn't sign a long-term deal. So he's going to be on the major league roster. He's going to be the starting left fielder because Aloy Jimenez not going to be in the game for the next three to four months, maybe even five. So not only are you going to have him skipping a couple levels to come up to the highest level in baseball, but you're going to be teaching him a position he's never played before. I think there's a lot of there, lot of lot of stuff there for him to learn. And if he succeeds, give him the give him the MVP, give him the rookie of the year, because that jump is amazing. If he is the guy that James Fox, Mike Rankin, Rick Hahn think that he is a 300 plus hitter, a guy who's going to hit for power too amazing that jump and he's going to be fielding the ball in left field i i have my doubts i don't think andrew vaughn is going to be as good as they think that he's going to be he's going to struggle mightily i think because the jump from single a to the majors is a huge one and the pitchers are going to be showing him exactly what they're about so i have no faith in him being a good player this year i have faith of him being a good player down the road whether that the White Sox are going to be hoisting the commissioner's trophy at the end of the year or they're going to be lamenting uh, a wasted opportunity in their championship window, it's going to be either way because of their their drafting and development staff and, and how they see guys like Andrew Vaughn and Zach Collins, who all of a sudden are going to get a lot of playing time this year. And normally I, I would have my doubts about that. But in 2020 showed me a lot because all of a sudden they bring up these kids in the bullpen you have guys like Cody Hoyer, Matt Foster. They become big-time guys to make contributions to a playoff team last year, and we didn't see those guys coming. Like you know, our, our prospect guys that we talked to at Future Sox, they they you know mentioned these guys in passing, but I don't think any of us thought that they would make the contributions they did. So they're having you know the same sort of philosophy this year on, on the hitting side when when they're talking about Andrew Vaughn. Now I think it's kind of a clever decision and a convenient one the fact that they, you know, decided not to sign a DH like Nelson Cruz or really anyone, you know, make, give Michael Brantley an offer to be a DH/left slash fielder for you and you know they they decided not to do that and I think it was more of out of convenience to not have to spend the money and then they have the fallback option like well this is our number 1 pick right here who, you know, everyone knows that he was ready the second he came out of college. So I think it's convenient for them that their number 1 prospect sort of 
nicely fits into that slot of DH, but now all of a sudden they're in the really precarious position where he may have to, to play in left field. And, and I think Tony La Russa said today that, you know, if the season line, if the lineup card had to be ready for the first game in Anaheim, he'd have Leori Garcia out there and not Andrew Vaughn. But I think you will see him out there at some point here. So I, I think if the White Sox scouting is as good as they believe it is, and we don't believe that they're as good as the Rays or, or the Dodgers or any other team like that. Like if they are as good as they believe they are, you know, they, they came into this offseason with, with brass balls and they said, you know what, Andrew Vaughn's going to be our guy, take it or leave it. And this is how we feel. And, you know, we're either going to ride or die with, with Andrew Vaughn. So, you know, we're skeptical of them just because like, I know that's the trend now in baseball where young guys make contributions a lot sooner than, than fans project them to because you know it just takes time to 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 build up these things in, in the minor league levels but now they're ushering these guys up a little quicker because the financial reasons I think first and foremost but now we're going to see if that hit tool is as polished as they say it is but again like Herb said not much time uh, above single a so it's, it's going to be a huge test for the White Sox and their and their development team to see if Andrew Vaughn can work out for them in 2021. So I know you guys are going to do some entire previews and predictions and things like that. And the AL Central has been one that goes back and forth with me between the Minnesota Twins, who have had a ton of regular season success and not a lot of playoff success, and this upstart White Sox group. The first thing I want to ask before we get to the big picture season real quick is just Tony Arusa himself. I think that there's a lot of question marks around this hire, and it's been a failing hire for a lot of people ever since it got made and the deal was inked. What's happened in spring, and has that has there ever been – negative feelings for you guys about Tony Russa and have any of those negative feelings if they were there have they gone away now that's what, what you've heard from spring because you mentioned the Chris Rose rotation show where you know Lucas Giolito was very complimentary of Tony Russa which surprised me a ton I mean I know he won't throw his manager under the bus but he went out of his way a bit to say hey that was kind of all outside noise I, I understood the old man stuff but it's once you got there it was not like that at all to where it kind of put me at ease of like okay well maybe this clubhouse won't be so bad because Baseball is a sport that I personally put a lot of stock into the clubhouse more so than in any other sport, because you're truly living with these people from February to November, if you're good enough, it, it wears on you a bit. So what's the feeling like today as we enter the first year under Tony LaRusso? Tony LaRusso? Well, I think it's, it's a very good feeling, or at least it's, it's not quite as polarizing as it once was when the hire was first made, because us being in, in the, the sports talk radio industry, it was, it was a very polarizing move, and it was a little embarrassing because... Rick Hahn laid out this plan for, you know, a transparent search and we knew who the candidates were going to be most likely. You know, you're talking about AJ Hinch being the guy that that made a lot of sense, but I wasn't too hot on AJ Hinch, but I definitely wasn't uh too hot on Tony La Russa. but you know, after the dust cleared on that one, I told Herb I said, you know, I'm not a huge manager's matter guy. Herb is even more so to the extreme that he thinks they really don't matter, but me I also realized that the White Sox have the horses to compete. And the way I saw this move was, okay, what do they look like when they break camp? Then I'll tell you what I think about the La Russa hire. And now that they've broken camp, I can tell you, eh, I don't mind the hire that much. It's it's fine. Um, the, the funny thing is, like, as the offseason progressed and the, the nasty stuff came out about the DUI, we really had problems with that. We spent entire shows talking about that. We got some fan backlash saying, why are you guys talking like this? It doesn't matter. It's not a big deal to have a few and get behind the wheel, which is still an insane thought that people have uh, nowadays. Um, but then once they started camp, once camp began, it was clear that Tony had done his homework 
and the guys liked him, and he was developing a bond with with these players in the clubhouse. And Tim Anderson co-signed him. It took a, a little longer than we thought. First, Tim Anderson, like there was no dialogue whatsoever between the two of those guys, and that was going to be how successful they, were they going to be. It was going to be contingent on the relationship between Tony and Tim. And then that took a while, but then all of a sudden. You know, T.A. said, hey, I'm going to be who I am regardless, and Tony's just the guy that makes the lineup, and he's 100% correct. Um, and then all of a sudden guys start to vouch for him a little bit, and they bring in Albert Pujols into camp and when they're playing the Angels, and, you know, Jose Abreu seeks counsel from from Pujols to talk about Tony La Russa, and slowly but surely these cosigns come rolling in, and it's, it's pretty absurd at face value because Tony La Russa is a Hall of Famer, so he should need all, all these cosigns. But I think as White Sox fans, we look at it, as a move that was kind of embarrassing. Like, oh, God, that's so White Sox that they bring a guy who didn't even have a success for them 30-plus years ago. Like, you have a guy, Ozzie Guillen, who won you a World Series, and he didn't even get an interview, you know, it's so much so that they, they called him and said, you know what, we're not interested in you before the search even began. So that was kind of weird in itself, but now as we sit here, they break camp, and all the, the drama has settled with the DUI, and I, I think it's going to be a good move because Tony's strength is – managing a bullpen and a pitching staff and he's got quite a bullpen this year to manage and it's going to be exciting and I think there's very little room for error here and he's already made some roster decisions here that surprised us the backup catcher role they they said goodbye to Jonathan Lucroy who we thought for sure was a guy to come in and be a Tony guy because it was a guy he was familiar with with his, his days in the NL Central but no not the case Tony decided to go with the younger guys on the roster so he surprised us a lot to this point and I think we're, we're done talking about that being a storyline unless he you know, has a senior moment or two, which I'm not an ageist, but he has said it happened at high levels before, like 10 years ago in the World Series. So it, that's always going to be there. But I think overall, this it's a good group, and and he knows how to manage a clubhouse uh, effectively. My only problem with – well, multiple problems with Tony Arusa, the fact that the owner, Jerry Reinsdorf, usurped the power of the general manager, Rick Hahn, once he fired Rick Renteria. We're expecting – Rick to do extensive search, maybe fire, uh, hire AJ Hinch, which I also would have had a problem with, but I would have understood the hiring there. Um, and also after a couple months, the DUI information came out. This was his second DUI that he got charged with. And so I didn't like those parts of the Tony LaRusso hiring. It was a disaster from the beginning. As spring training started, as Tanny has said, I'm not a manager's matter and wins and losses that much you know they do have an effect on the game but i think it's negligible at the end of the day so what tony's job is is to manage the clubhouse manage the personalities have the guys like him and that's what's happening so far guys have been raving about him in spring training and so if that is what the message is going to be if that's what the feeling's going to be the attitude's going to be I'm all for it, and there's nothing but positivity coming out of that White Sox clubhouse. So I'm all for Tony La Russa managing the 2021 White Sox. Only problem I have is he's up there in age. So is this a one, two-year thing? Because the White Sox have an open window. I'm thinking, as Tanny likes to say, it's the Lucas Giolito window. So however long his deal is, which is what, two, three more years, Tanny? Yep. So that's their window unless they sign him to an extension. So how long will Tony La Russa be there? If you're a guy who's 76 years old, already got your your skins in the wall with the championships and the Hall of Fame, how much is going to the playoffs going to mean to you? How much is 
winning a championship of the White Sox going to mean to you? I mean, you already got your championships. You already got your plaque in the Hall of Fame. So that's the only thing I have with Tony Russo, the motivation. What's in it for him? Yeah, it feels pretty pressurized. And again, without spoiling your predictions, just what kind of is at stake this year for the White Sox? Because, you know, for perspective in Kansas City, the expectation level for this team is to be a competent and a quality baseball team. There's no pressure on making the playoffs. Maybe finishing five, six games out would be the goal. And every single day you look forward to sitting down and watching the Royals. My big example has been that whenever Patrick Mahomes takes the field for training camp, I don't want the fact, I don't want the Royals to be turned off the TV and you only care about training camp updates and what Mahomes is doing in shorts with the Marcus Robinson. I, I want the focus to still be on the Kansas City Royals and it will take them being a competent baseball team to do that. So that's literally the bar in Kansas City right now. That's not the case in Chicago. Is this a type of team where you look at it and go, this team better make the postseason? This team better win the division? This team better win a World Series? Like, what is the expectation for Chicago right now? Absolutely. Expectation is to go deep in the postseason because they, they got there last year, albeit they they backed in. You know, I think if they were managed a little bit better, maybe they were sitting there with that one seed at the end of the season as opposed to just kind of eking in, uh, you know, be behind the twins. But I think this year, if they don't, you know, maybe they, they could get, you know, slide by not winning the division and, and getting in as a wild card. But I think anything beyond that would be a, an abject failure for this organization in, in their championship window. You acted as if a, a team that was built to win by not really going out there and finishing the roster in the way that we would have would have seen. So if, if you're not taking that next step, it, it's it's a huge step backwards. And any year that you waste, you know, Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer, so many years in Chicago here, they, they talked about every every year is sacred and every bite at the apple is, is an opportunity you have to take advantage of. And if they don't make the postseason this year, I think that's a, that's a huge failure. I have them winning the world series. I predicted that like, you know, on the lockdown bold predictions video, like I have them winning the world series before the Eloy injury. I've had to come to terms with how I look at this roster now after that injury. And I still like the roster a lot. So, but if, but if they, I think that the bar should be winning the division over the, over the twins and it, it should be easy for them, you know, they may have to grind it out along the way, but I think this team on paper is more talented than the Twins are. So anything less than that, in my eyes, is a failure. My, me too. Um, the White Sox have to go, I think, at least to the ALCS to satisfy most White Sox fans. And at the end of the day, if they lose in the ALCS, most White Sox fans are like, oh, God, I can't believe it. But looking at it right now at the beginning of the season, if they make it to the ALCS, Satisfied is the wrong word for it, but I'll be like, okay, here we go. This is a stepping stone. They went to the round, the first round last year. This year, they're going to the ALCS. Next year is the World Series. It's a gradual stepping stone. Um, and uh, anything less than that, if they just do the first round again and get bounced out, I think most White Sox fans like this is stalling out. Like we didn't do enough in this past offseason to get us to the next level. Like we're talking literally right now in this podcast about them competing with the Minnesota Twins for the AL Central. I don't think that should be a thing with the White Sox talent, the White Sox money, the big market that they have. This should be a walk for the White Sox, even without Aloy Jimenez. 
if they did the things in the post, I mean, in the off season, like they're supposed to get like a designated hitter, a, a, a right fielder that can hit for power. And we all kind of like Adam Eaton, but I didn't think it was the right move. So that's what I'm looking at. Um, there's going to be a lot of, man, we could have struck while the iron was hot, like the Padres did, like the Dodgers did. They just won a World Series. Like, you know what? That's not enough. Let's go and win another one. And I think the White Sox just rested on their laurels this offseason. And hopefully they believe that they have the fourth and fifth starters in Carlos Rodon and Dylan Cease. And they believe those guys are really good. And that the guy, uh, Andrew Vaughn, is the guy that they think he is. And that Michael Kopech and Gary Crochet are going to do well in the bullpen. So all the stuff that we're talking about is going to be moot. And they're going to make it to the ALCS or more or lose in the World Series or win the World Series. All these things are possible for the White Sox. I can see now with Eloy being out, them missing the playoffs entirely. And that would be a huge failure, no matter if you put the Eloy excuse in there. But at the end of the year, I think the White Sox fans will be happy with where they're at because I just think the the offense will carry this team as far if they have no injuries. They already having Eloy out is a big-time thing. Having anybody else out will hamper the team greatly. But if everybody stays healthy, this offense is going to play, and the top three in that rotation are solid. So when you get to the playoffs, that's pretty much all you need. And the bullpen is the best bullpen in the majors. So I think the White Sox will eventually, and you know, I'm not afraid to give you my prediction here. I think the White Sox will eventually make the ALCS and probably lose to the Yankees in a seven game series. So uh, real quick before we got out of here, I know it's gone a little bit long here, but just, you brought something up that was very interesting to me. What's the scale? As you can tell my world's fans, I'm already skipping ahead of this off season. What's the scale (laughs) one to 10 of your confidence that this organization in Chicago will make those moves to get better and will make those moves to cash in? Or do you think that this team will just continue to run it back and run it back and run it back and just hope that they can break through one of these times? Because in Kansas City, they kept running it back with that core of Moustakas, Hosmer, Kane, Escobar, Perez, and they added in the margins. They added a Johnny Cueto for a half a season, a Ben Zobris for half a season, and that's where the adding would stop. Kendrick Morales would come in and supplement Billy Butler, and then you had Norioki and you had Alex Rios, and that was the kind of moves that was made. Do you think that this team will make those kind of moves? Will just simply run it back and, and roll the same team out there next year since they're so young? Or could you see this team making that blockbuster? Like, okay, you know what? Screw this. We're really good right now. We're, we're cashing in on a Trevor Story type of player in off in the offseason. We're trying to sign the big fish. We're trying to bolster this roster this second to go win a World Series in 2022. Because if the Royals hope to win in 2022, which is what they've been saying for five years, and, and the signs are pointing to their young guys getting called up in 2022, and the Twins are still going to be good, and then the White Sox are going to be great, this is shaping up for a great division. But what's your trust, 1 to 10, in this organization to make those marquee moves to capitalize on this window because as Kansas city fans can tell you, it's never as open as you think it is. I'm going to go. Sorry. sorry, Uh, I'm going to go with the, with a solid seven confidence level here because with the white Sox, you're always talking about a team who has never gone all in, even though that was their marketing campaign when they signed Adam Dunn and uh, brought back Paul Canerco in 2011. Like they, they've never gone all in on a, on a top tier 
free agent. Um, however, they do have the opportunity here at the deadline if Andrew Vaughn doesn't pan out the way they see fit. We actually talked about uh, in one of our previous shows, you know, potential targets at the deadline. And I had Jorge Soler was right there at the top of my list as a guy at DH if you needed to make a move. But my concern now is with the White Sox is with the Eloy injury, it really exposes their lack of depth in the, in the farm system. And teams are targeting these high upside teenagers now that can play multiple positions in the White Sox. They definitely don't have that. So, uh, you know, but my confidence level is not from a, a standpoint where I don't think they'll try and make that deal. My, my worry is that they don't have enough firepower to, to make that acquisition at the deadline. Like I think they, they'll, they'll be willing to absorb salary, which I think is a plus because with fans coming in, I think that's sort of the life preserver they need here for Jerry Reinsdorf is to see at least fans are coming back slowly but surely. It may not be what you want, but at least you could say, okay, pandemic's behind us, vaccines are here, fans are coming, so we know we can account on X amount of dollars coming in gradually throughout the course of the year. So I think they can be players in terms of adding additional salary, but I don't know, maybe you know teams will, will, will not be in a position where they can – you know take a shot on these lottery tickets that we've seen like in the Darvish trade. So, you know, I, I, I'm going to stay with, with a solid seven, always skeptical uh, of uh, the finances involved and things like that, because they, they, they've never committed hundred percent to anything really in my lifetime. So I'm going with a seven here. I'm going with the four oh. white Sox had an opportunity this off season with people out there that didn't cost that much money. Michael Brantley would have been a perfect fit. Knows the division longtime Cleveland Indian, I mean, left fielder, left, uh, left-handed stroke that goes right to left center field all the time, home runs, doubles, whatever you need. They're like, they didn't even get into that bidding. Same thing with his former teammate who now is in Toronto with George Springer. They didn't even come close to him and weren't even in the conversations for Trevor Bauer. These are the type of guys that you needed for your championship window. And you saw you Darvish get traded for a bunch of lottery tickets. We saw same thing with uh, Snell. Like these things are very frustrating getting Lance Lynn awesome we had to trade one of our top pitchers a major league pitcher to Texas for that no one's trading major league talent for pitchers this offseason no one did that like Jameson Tyon went to the Yankees not for major league talent same thing that for his teammate and Joe Musgrove not great pitcher there but still they jumped the market on a pitcher where they could have got somebody for much cheaper, which would have been in their ballpark. Um, 73 million is the highest amount of money they've paid for a free agent. And that was Yasmani Grandal. That was a big time surprise for the White Sox because they had James McCann already on the team that played very well the year before. So for them to jump the market and getting him was a surprise because it's on free agent. Imagine that. And if there's a guy out there, like you talking about Trevor story and there's not a, Snowball's chance in hell they're ever going to pay a $100 million contract for a player while Jerry Reinsdorf is the owner of this team. I think he's just averse to that. I don't know why. He just wants to win in his way, and I'm I'm frustrated with him, but I'm not leaving the team, so I just got to deal with what he has. So, yeah, they're just going to run it back, and unlike – Kansas City, where I think the Glass family probably let Dayton Moore do his thing under some type of parameters, knowing that they're a small market team. Jerry Reinsdorf has his finger in everything. He has to get, uh, like, Rick Hahn has to get approval from him for everything. 
and he's just meddling in every single thing that's going on with the White Sox instead of letting his baseball people do their baseball jobs like we just saw him do with the manager and usurping his general manager's authority there. So, yeah, I have no faith in the White Sox going to get the necessary pieces, the big time pieces for championship contention because they're in that window right now. And they decided just to run it back this year and go with the players that they have faith in. And the White Sox are a very insular organization already where they believe in the people that they have and they hire the people that they have to do extra jobs. So that's what's going to happen. They make the playoffs this year. They're going to be very satisfied with that. And it's like, hey, another year of growth of this guy, another year of growth of that guy, another year of growth of that. Next year we got Michael Kopech and we have Garrett Crochet joining the rotation instead of Dylan Cease and uh, Carlos Rodon. So we're going to be that much better type of thing. That's what they're going to say. And I'm going to be disappointed. I'm going to be talking to you next year on this preview for uh, White Sox Royals. And I'm be like, God damn, the Royals are coming. And Spencer Torkelson's in, in Detroit. And that team's coming. The Minnesota Twins are not going away. And somehow the Cleveland Indians are good again. And now we're competing with all these teams again, which we should have been going way past them. And that's what the frustration is there. Like, we're in the biggest market in this division. We should be dominating, but we're not. And it's so, so, so disappointing. Through the 90s, it was the Indians. Then it was the Twins. Then the, then the Royals won the World Series. It's just like, come on now. We should be killing this division. But we're just like an also-ran. We're just the, if we had to put a ranking on which teams during my lifetime are the best of the AL Central, I'll say the White Sox are probably like third or fourth. And that's disappointing, very disappointing in my lifetime. They've been to the playoffs, what, now 10 times ever? And seven, uh, six during my lifetime? That's piss poor. Yeah, I've only got two playoff appearances in my lifetime, so it, it could be worse. Hopefully we get some more coming up uh, pretty soon for Kansas City. But this has been great. Uh, I look forward to talking more throughout the year and following along with your podcast, making sure I'm up to date with what's happening with the White Sox. This has been awesome, guys. Thank you very much, Ryland. It's been great for us, too. It's very enjoyable. And as I always say, if we're going to talk about the Midwest cities and we're going to talk about the Midwest ballparks, there's no better ballpark than I like to visit than Kauffman Stadium. Mercy, is that a, a showpiece for baseball? I love the Hall of Fame there. Eloy tried to destroy it last year with that ball. He hit about 485 feet. I'm hoping Frank White is fine. And then the bobbleheads didn't die in that uh, Hall of Fame, <laughs> but there's no better place. And I hope you get a chance to go to a couple games. I don't know how Missouri's uh, rules are for COVID and uh, how many people they're letting in, but I want to get down there as soon as I can because there's nothing more enjoyable than a Kansas City game and uh, getting some uh, Boulevard. Boulevard's awesome. Coffin's awesome. You guys are awesome. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you, Ron. Appreciate you.